0: What we're gonna see with this second talk is the versatility of the Psalter. Again, the Psalms don't just deal with our hearts and our emotions and our personal lives. The Psalms also deal with politics, with history. Uh, The Psalms give us what you could call an eschatology, which shows us the the direction, the trajectory, the arc of history, and how it's all going to end. Uh, Psalm 23 is a Psalm written to comfort and calm us in times of crisis. Uh, times of personal crisis, times of anxiety and fear. Psalm 110 is written to guide us through political and economic and cultural crises by showing us who is really in charge and how history is going and how it will all come to an end. Psalm 110 is going to show us Christ from multiple angles. This is a prophetic psalm, and I would actually consider this psalm to be the highest peak of Old Testament revelation. In just seven verses, we learn all we need to know about the coming Christ God has promised to his people. We learn that Christ will be a king and a priest. He will be a warrior and a victor. He is the one who is to come and the one who will come again when he has finally subdued his enemies. And this psalm, you know, this psalm, you could say opens with the promise of this Christ who is to come, it closes really showing us how uh, how history will end, what his final coming will bring about. So it's a very complete description of Christ and his person and his work. It even hints at the dual personhood uh, of Jesus as God and man, the incarnation, it hints at the Trinity. Uh, really, I think you could say Psalm 110 is the gospel. This is the gospel in Old Covenant form, if we want to joyfully endure hard times, political and social and economic crises, we need to know we're on the winning side. We need to know where history is going. And this psalm shows us that. It shows us that if we want to navigate cultural and political and socioeconomic crises, we need to look to this priest king that God has given to us. Uh, I would say this psalm gives us even, you could say, a recipe for cultural reformation and renewal. And uh, by the time we get to the end of this psalm, we will see how Christ has made a complete conquest of his enemies, how he promises to disciple the nations and uh, make them his own. All of that is packed into these seven verses. So let me read this for us, and uh, we'll start to look at it. This, too, is a psalm of David. And this is how it reads. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn, and he will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. This is the word of the Lord. Again, let us pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm and the way it points us to Christ Jesus. Father, as we contemplate this psalm, would you strengthen our trust in Christ? Would you make us more like him? Would you help us to submit ourselves to his reign more fully? This we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. So let me start with a question Do you have a a favorite Bible passage? Do you have a favorite Bible verse? You know, in one sense, that's kind of a strange thing to ask. After all, the whole Bible is God's inspired word. Who are we to say that we like one part of it more than any other part? It's all inerrant. It's all infallible. Every last word of it is God's truth. Every bit of scripture is authoritative. It's all revelatory. It's all fully consistent. So we definitely can't pick and choose the parts we like. We've got to be whole Bible Christians. Everything from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is all God's word to us. Leviticus is just as much God's word as Romans is. The genealogies in First Chronicles are just as inspired as the stories in the gospel. All of scripture is God's inspired truth, and it has all of those qualities, all of those properties that belong to the word of God. But I would bet most of us have certain passages of scripture that we gravitate to, that we turn to more than others for comfort or for direction. You may find some passages of scripture speak more clearly to you or, or, or they speak to you more powerfully than other parts of scripture. Uh, some aspects of scripture might figure more prominently in our lives. Now, I don't know that it makes any sense to say we have a you know, favorite verse. I'm, I'm not sure what, you know, if it makes a lot of sense to say that. What about this question? Do you think God has a favorite verse of the Bible? <laughs> does God have some part of the Bible that he just really you know, loves more than any other part? Again, it's kind of a weird question to ask because, again, all of Scripture is God's Word. But I'll tell you this. If God does have a favorite passage of Scripture it is undoubtedly Psalm 110. Now, why do I say that? Because Psalm 110 is cited again and again in Scripture. Everywhere you go, this psalm keeps popping up. It's just everywhere. Psalm 110 is quoted in the New Testament more than any other chapter. Psalm 110 verse 1 is quoted or alluded to more than any other single verse. It just comes up again and again and again. It's really astounding to note how often Psalm 110 shows up. It may not be the most famous psalm in the church today. I think the fact that it's kind of a neglected psalm is actually a big problem. But it certainly was famous in the days of Jesus and the apostles. You know, if you think of the psalms, you have this, you have an album, okay? The psalms are songs. So you have an album with 150 songs. Psalm 110 is the Psalter's greatest hit okay? That's how you have to look at this. This is the one that went to the top of the charts and just stayed there. It's that kind of psalm. Let me give you a few examples of how this psalm shows up in the New Testament, how the New Testament makes use of this psalm. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is having one of his debates with the scribes and Pharisees. They've been peppering Jesus with questions, trying to trap him. And finally, he's had enough of it, so he turns the tables on them, and he asks them a question. And the question comes from Psalm 110. He says to them, whose son is the Christ? And they reply correctly, the son of David. Jesus then asks, how then does David in the Spirit, under the inspiration of the Spirit, call him Lord, saying... And here he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he David's son? Now, this is a puzzle. It is a riddle. Maybe you already know the answer to it. But certainly the scribes and Pharisees couldn't answer it. And so they were silenced in debate. They dared not ask him any more questions after that. Jesus used Psalm 110 to silence The Pharisees. We'll talk about that mystery in just a minute, how the Messiah can be both David's son and David's Lord. It's one of the most fascinating things in this psalm. But that's the question that Jesus raised with the Pharisees to refute them. Consider some other places where Psalm 110 is quoted or alluded to or echoed in the New Testament. A few chapters later in Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus is on trial, false witnesses are brought in to testify against him. The high priest puts him under oath and says, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus under oath seals his fate by answering with words pulled from Psalm 110 in Daniel chapter seven. He says, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. That's Psalm 110 and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's Daniel Seven. So Jesus indicates here that Psalm 110 will be fulfilled in him and his ministry, specifically in his ascension. And then the apostles continued this theme of appealing to Psalm 110. In Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, Peter's sermon right after the Holy Spirit is poured out, he cites Psalm 110. In fact, you could say, if not the whole sermon in in Acts chapter 2, a big chunk of that sermon is devoted to explaining how Jesus has fulfilled Psalm 110 in his resurrection, his ascension, and his reign. And on that day, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but I'll do this anyway. On that day in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 enemies of Jesus were subdued beneath his feet and formed into a willing army, an army of volunteers, all, of course, in accord with Psalm 110. When Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter seven, which is one of the great turning points in the history of the church, one of the great turning points in the book of Acts, some of his final words are drawn from Psalm 110. Paul makes numerous references to Psalm 110 in his letters. So for example, in Ephesians chapter one, verse 20, Paul alludes to Psalm 110 in describing Christ's powerful reign at God's right hand. Uh, Another example, Psalm 110 is crucial to Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is, of course, defending the bodily resurrection of Jesus and our bodily resurrection at the last day, and he's also describing the whole flow of history between these two resurrection events. And he appeals to Psalm 110, in fact, he really gives an exposition of Psalm 110 to explain where history is going and how Jesus is defeating his enemies in history. The book of Hebrews cites Psalm 110 at least eight times. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews can be considered a sermon based on Psalm 110. If you want to preach on Psalm 110, I mean, I could just stand up here and read Hebrews to you because it is an exposition from beginning to end of Psalm 110. Several of the key arguments in the book of Hebrews are based on Psalm 110 being fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus. Now, you've got lots of places where there are little fragments, little snippets of Psalm 110 showing up in the New Testament, and it's important to understand how this works. Whenever an Old Testament passage is echoed or alluded to or quoted in the New Testament, you need to understand the entire context of that passage that is quoted. The entire context, the entire surrounding context is actually being invoked with that one with that one reference, with that one allusion. So even just a little piece of Psalm 110 being invoked, being quoted, really invokes the whole psalm. We got to go look at the whole psalm to see how this works. You might have an allusion uh, to just one phrase from Psalm 110, but that should call to mind the whole psalm. Think of it this way. Uh, you know what hyperlinks are? Like when you're reading an article online and you have a hyperlink and it, and if you click on that link, it will take you to another article. It, you know, it might just be that there's a little phrase or an allusion to another article, but it's highlighted And the point is, you're supposed to say, okay, the whole context, even though it's only a little piece of that article here in the article I'm reading, that whole article actually fits in right here. That whole whole other article is being invoked by this hyperlink. You know, you've got one article basically embedded in another. And that's how this works. The New Testament might just have one little piece of Psalm 110 highlighted, but think of it as a hyperlink. And if you click on it, you get the whole of Psalm 110. 110. That's how Old Testament allusions in the New Testament work. You got to click the link and go back and get the whole Old Testament passage, that whole context, the whole context of whatever passage has been cited. So if the New Testament is filled with little bits and pieces of Psalm 110 here and there, you know, in every single one of those cases, you need to click the link, click the hyperlink, and go back to Psalm 110 and see how the whole Psalm works. In that, in that passage where it's been quoted or cited in the New Testament. Now, that makes Psalm 110 really, really important because the New Testament is filled with Psalm 110 hyperlinks. Okay? You can't read very far in the New Testament without coming across a hyperlink that'll take you back to Psalm 110. Again, this is the most frequently hyperlinked passage of the Old Testament in the New. Okay? That's, that's the way to think about this. So here, here's how to think about Psalm 110 we could summarize the gospel this way. The gospel is the announcement that Psalm 110 has been fulfilled. Next time somebody asks you, so what is the gospel? You know, what, what is this gospel you Christians believe? Say, well, it's the fulfillment of Psalm 110 in Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled Psalm 110. That's the gospel. That's the essence of the whole New Testament. The gospel means this psalm is being fulfilled. It's safe to say you really cannot have any kind of deep understanding of Scripture without understanding this psalm and the truths it teaches. And what that means is you can't really understand what God is doing in your life or in the world without grasping this psalm. This psalm is a key that unlocks many doors. Not just many doors in the New Testament like Peter's sermon in Acts 2 or Jesus' debate with the Pharisees or Paul's teaching on the resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15. It unlocks history for us. It unlocks the meaning of the whole creation. And I think one of the reasons why the church today is so weak and so effeminate, and so cowardly. The reason why the church experiences so much mission drift in our day is, I would say, in general, because we don't sing the psalms enough, but especially we don't sing Psalm 110. Because, again, this psalm is the key to so much. And it's interesting. If you were to poll people, what's your favorite psalm? Or if you were to look at what are the most cited psalms, or in churches that do sing psalms, the most sung psalms, Psalm 110 is nowhere near the top. Nowhere near. And yet for Jesus and the apostles, again, this is the top. This is the one they appealed to the most. Because this psalm contains the whole Christian message. And if we get it, then we get the Christian faith. If we get it, it will make us bold and confident and unwavering and joyful, even in the midst of historical crisis. This psalm is filled with the good news. This psalm answers the question, who is the king of the world? Who rules this world? And it's not Putin, and it's not Biden, and it's not Bill Gates. It's Jesus. And that's good news. It is Jesus. He is seated in heaven at the Father's right hand. He reigns right now. He is God's right-hand man. And that is good news. All authority is His He is waging war, conquering his enemies and subduing his foes. He is claiming the nations as his own. He's bringing judgment against those who oppose him. That's what this psalm shows us. Well, let's look at it in a little more detail. Verse 1 immediately takes us into one of the deepest mysteries of Scripture. I've already hinted at what this is. In verse 1, it is as if we get to eavesdrop on a conversation between the Father and the Son. We are overhearing an inter-Trinitarian conversation. Think how cool that is. You know, usually when you eavesdrop, you're hearing something you're not supposed to hear, but this is a conversation we get to overhear that the Father and the Son want us to overhear. Verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, English translations do obscure what's going on here. There are two different words translated as Lord here, and your your English Bible might call attention to this by having the first time Lord appears in this verse, uh, it, it may be in all capital letters, and that is to indicate to you that it is the special name for God, the name Yahweh, God's covenant name. So this is Yahweh speaking, and Yahweh speaks to Adonai. Which is another name for God. It's a title for God that basically, again, means something like Lord or Master. It's a title used for God the Son very often. So here, Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Yahweh is God. Adonai is David's God, David's Lord. So he's also God. So obviously this has to be the Trinity. The only way to solve this conundrum is with the doctrine of the Trinity. You have to have something like the doctrine of the Trinity for this to make sense because you have two figures, each of whom can be identified as divine, two figures, each of whom can be called Lord. And again, remember, this is the question that Jesus raised in Matthew chapter 22 with the Pharisees. How can the Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord? The church father, Tertullian, said this, and this is his way of kind of capturing what's happening here. Tertullian said, In almost all the psalms which prophesy of the person of Christ, the Son converses with the Father. That is, in these psalms we observe the Spirit speaking of the Father and the Son. What Tertullian is saying here is that the Spirit in these psalms reveals the inter-Trinitarian conversation that takes place between the Father and the Son and gives us insight into that inter-Trinitarian relationship. The Spirit witnesses to the conversation. And here in Psalm 110, inspires David to record the conversation. That's really what you have in Psalm 110. The curtain is being pulled back. The curtain is being pulled back so we can get a glimpse of God's inner life. Again, a private conversation taking place in heaven becomes public on earth through this psalm. That's an amazing thing in and of itself to have this recorded conversation of the father making promises to his son. The Old Testament obviously does not have a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity the way we get it in the New Testament, but there are plenty of hints and clues in the Old Testament that indicate to us that the one God exists eternally in three persons, each of whom is fully God and each of whom is distinct from the others, and yet the three together share one common divine life. And this psalm gives us insight to that. into that. This psalm records God talking to God. Again, an inter-Trinitarian conversation. And this really gets us to the solution to the riddle. The Trinity, and then following from that, the incarnation, that's how you solve the riddle that Jesus posed to the scribes and the Pharisees. It's the only way to make sense out of what is said here. We have to see Jesus as the Messiah, as both David's son and David's Lord. He is the God-man. He is one with his father in his godhood, and he is one with David in his manhood. And this is how he can be both David's son and David's Lord. It's interesting, Isaiah 11 is another passage that does this same kind of thing. It describes the Messiah as root and branch as the root and branch of David's house. And so you might ask the question in Isaiah chapter 11, well, how can the Messiah come after David and also be before David? How can he be the root from which David comes and the branch that comes from David? And that's what Isaiah 11 is saying, that the Messiah comes from David, that he comes from David, and that David came from the Messiah that he's before David and after David. Again, how can that be? Well, again, the answer is that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the eternal God entering human history and becoming one of us. He is the eternal son of God in Davidic flesh. That's the answer to the riddle. He is David's son and David's Lord. David's Lord because he is the eternal God and David's son because in his human nature, he was born into David's family. Now, here, Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand. God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand. These are the words of the Father to Jesus when Jesus ascends into heaven. And and so what do you have here? You have the one who was crucified and who has now been resurrected. Now ascending into heaven, he takes his seat at the right hand of God the Father. And what happens next? The God-man, Jesus, the Messiah, takes his seat on the throne in heaven. That's the ascension. And then what happens? We'll keep reading. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It goes on. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion rule in the midst of your enemies. The image here is of Christ's enemies being put under his feet. Think of Genesis 3.15. That's certainly in the background here. Genesis 3.15, the promised seed of the woman, that's also a messianic promise. It is a promise that the Messiah will crush the serpent under his feet. That's the picture you get. The conquering king stepping on the necks of his enemies, crushing the heads of his enemies. Okay, That's the idea. They'll be put under his feet. In Joshua chapter 10, when Joshua conquered the Canaanite kings, he said to the captains of Israel, come and put your feet on the necks of these kings. That's the picture you have in Psalm 110. So it certainly includes subduing his enemies, by defeating them, by destroying them, but I actually think there is a double entendre at work here, uh, because that word footstool—that's one of those key words you have to highlight. That word footstool can carry another meaning. In Scripture, sometimes the Ark of the Covenant that was in the temple is called God's footstool. The Ark of the Covenant had cherubim on top of it, and the wings of the cherubim formed God's throne. So God was enthroned above the cherubim, we're told elsewhere in the psalm. So if you can picture it, God's enthroned upon the wings of the cherubim, and then his feet would be resting on the top of the Ark, which of course is where the blood would be sprinkled uh, on the Day of Atonement. That was the place where atonement was made. Okay, this imagery is kind of strange to us, but it's it's there again and again in Scripture. The footstool is where God rests his feet when he is enthroned above the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. In other places in Scripture, the temple as a whole is called God's footstool, as if God is enthroned above the whole earth, and the place where God's feet rest on the earth is the temple. So, for example, Psalm 99 and Psalm 132 call on the people of Israel to worship at God's footstool meaning in the temple go to the temple the temple is God's footstool so think about this if that's also in the background the footstool is the ark of the covenant the footstool is the temple for God to make his enemies into a footstool can also be a way of describing their conversion and salvation. It means God is forming them into a temple. It means he is subduing them to himself, making them his obedient and faithful worshipers. It can be a a picture of destruction. There's no doubt about that. Putting your feet on the necks of your enemies, that's a sign that you've vanquished them, that you've completely conquered them, like Joshua destroying the kings of Canaan. But we also see there are places where footstool has another meaning. And it can mean if if his enemies are being made into his footstool, it means they're being converted. It means that they're being converted into an ark upon which the Lord will be enthroned. It means they're being converted into a temple in which he will dwell. And in fact, I would say all of the judgment imagery in Psalm 110 is actually open-ended. God can subdue his enemies into a footstool by destroying them or by converting them. And this is one of the keys to this psalm. And we'll see this as we go. The psalm goes on to say, the rod of his strength will extend out from Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. Uh, It's again, the place where the temple was. It's the place where Jesus was crucified. It's the place from which all blessings flow uh, in scripture. The rod of his strength will extend out from Zion so his reign will not be limited to Israel. He will not rule over Israel only, but over the nations because the rod is extending out from there to the rest of the nations. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. All kings, nations, and empires will be under his lordship. The rod, of course, here is symbolic of his kingdom and his power. We saw this in Psalm 23, the rod used to bring judgment. The rod is used to shatter his enemies and to extend his rule. The rod brings judgment and salvation. He wages war with his rod. So obviously Christ is a warrior, but how does he fight? What does it mean for him to fight against his enemies? If he is seated in heaven at the Father's right hand, how does he conduct his campaigns on earth? How does he carry out this warfare On earth? Well, uh, keep going through the psalm. Look at verse 3. Your people will be volunteers in the day of your power. Your people will be willing in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. Your people will be volunteers. We sometimes use that language for soldiers who are committed to fight for a cause. Think about the Tennessee Volunteers. That's where that name comes from. People who are willing to fight for a cause. That's the idea here. These soldiers form an army and they are willing to fight. They're so attracted to his beauty, to his holiness, to his life. You could say to the dew that is here. That's probably symbolic of the anointing of the Holy Spirit that covers him. They're so attracted to him that these soldiers will be loyal and willing to fight for him. Now, of course, He has to subdue them first to make them willing. I think these soldiers who are willing, these volunteers who are ready to rush out to the battlefield to fight for him, are ones that he has subdued and made into a footstool for himself. Think about this. The Westminster Confession of Faith describes it this way in chapter 7. The Holy Spirit makes us willing and able to believe. That's what's being described here, being made willing by God's grace. Chapter 10, section 1 uh, says, we come to him, we come to Christ most freely, being made willing by his grace. That's what's being pictured here. We become volunteers in Christ's army because he's subdued us, because he's conquered us, because his grace has made us willing. This is Messiah's army. And there are no mercenaries in this army, no slaves pressed into service against their will. This is an army of volunteers. These soldiers fight for love. They fight because they love their king. They fight because Jesus, as their king, has subdued them and conquered them and made them his own. He is at work conquering the nations, making them his footstool, growing his army, and this is a process that unfolds over the centuries. This is one way of looking at what history is about. As the nations are being discipled, Jesus is assembling an army, an army of willing volunteers. And I think one of the keys to this, again, is to see that the church is instrumental in this process. He rules in the midst of his enemies, and he powerfully uses his church, an army made up of willing volunteers, to extend the reign of his kingdom over the nations. We're told in Ephesians 6 that we have a kind of warfare to wage ourselves. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. We are the means Christ uses. It's our evangelism, our teaching, our setting an example, our praying, our singing, our serving. As we do these things, Satan's kingdom falls. And the rod of Christ's rule is extended. See, we have a role in this. The the army, the volunteers have a role in the fulfillment of this psalm. We bring it about through our service, through our sacrifice, through our evangelism, through our discipleship. We are living in a Psalm 110 world. Don't believe the headlines. that tell you this or that is what's controlling things, pulling strings behind the scenes or whatnot. We live in a Psalm 110 world where Jesus... And his church, his army of willing volunteers, rule. We're the ones who, under Christ and in union with Christ, rule over all. The fulfillment of Psalm 110 is unfolding all around us as Christ judges and saves. For the last 2,000 years, he's been sitting on his throne doing this work through his willing army. This psalm really reminds me of another story. Remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when you get to the end, you know, there's this whole thing about you know, Aslan is on the move. Okay, well, that fits well with this psalm. Jesus is on the move. You know, he, he's going to do something. But when Aslan wins the victory at the stone table, then remember how after that he forms an army of, of, of willing soldiers who will go to battle with him in a kind of mop, mopping up operation. Well, that's what's being described here. Jesus keeps on fighting, and now he fights especially through his people. And he fights especially through the word, and through prayer, and through the service and sacrifice that his soldiers make. And Jesus keeps adding to his army as new recruits are coming in all the time, and he keeps going forth, conquering and to conquer. Verse 4 continues, the Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not relent. This is an unchanging oath. It is a permanent promise. And what is this oath? What is this promise? You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There's so much comfort here, especially when you think about the political and and social crises that surround us, to know that we have a king priest who will rule forever. Now, this line here, this this connection of Jesus to Melchizedek and and calling him a priest forever. Hebrews chapter seven especially picks up on this part of the psalm. In fact, you can think of Hebrews chapter seven as an exposition, a chapter-long exposition of this one verse of Psalm 110. This oath that God makes to his son, to the Messiah, to this Melchizedekian priest, that is mentioned five times in Hebrews chapter seven. And what do we find there when we look at that? Well, I'll summarize it for you. Jesus is a priest greater than the Aaronic priest from the tribe of Levi. He belongs to a higher and greater order, uh, priestly order. The Levitical priest's work was never done, so they could never sit down on the job. But Jesus sat down at the Father's right hand because his work is complete. The Levitical priests had to repeatedly offer sacrifices because the sacrifices they made The blood of bulls and goats, those sacrifices were not effective, but Jesus made a once and for all sacrifice that affected our salvation. The Levitical priests died. They couldn't take away the curse. In fact, they suffered under it. But Jesus has conquered death, and now he ever lives to make intercession for us. He has an eternal priesthood, an everlasting priesthood. It is based on the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is very interesting, too. He's this mysterious figure from Genesis chapter 14, and he seems to be brought into the story mainly to provide a pattern. There are big debates over who Melchizedek is. Is this some pre-incarnate revelation of Christ, or is this some historical figure? We don't have to resolve that to understand what's going on here. Melchizedek shows up in Genesis chapter 14, and he's only there for a few verses. If you blink, you'll miss him in the book of Genesis. Genesis. I kind of think of Melchizedek as the Tom Bombadil of the Bible, okay? You know, Tom Bombadil from from the Lord of the Rings, okay? He's this mysterious figure who just kind of shows up in the story and then disappears. Nobody knows where he came from or where he went. And that's how Melchizedek is. In fact, I think Tolkien might have even patterned uh, Bombadil after Melchizedek uh, to some degree. But Melchizedek is important because he gives the template for Jesus. He's a priest and a king rolled into one. He's a king of righteousness and peace. He's a priest who uh, does not have a priesthood based on any kind of genealogy. And when he meets Abraham, he gives Abraham priestly bread and royal wine, just like Jesus does for his people. So Melchizedek is a pattern, a template for understanding the priesthood of Jesus. David then closes the psalm with a prophecy of what the Lord Jesus will do as priest king in history. From his lofty perch in heaven, from his position at the Father's right hand, he will wage war, he will pass judgment, he will get the victory, he will go forth conquering and to conquer. Verse 5, he shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the head of many countries. That's interesting. You read this psalm and the bodies are just piling up. It's like you have this big pile of corpses. I mean, the flow of this psalm is really interesting. It starts off with this really deep and beautiful inter-Trinitarian conversation, this inter-Trinitarian theology that just, it's as deep as it could be. And now, as you get to the end of the psalm, you got all these bodies piling up. Heads are rolling. What's going on? Well, Jesus does indeed bring judgment in history. And there is also a final judgment at the last day. And I think this could point to both aspects, the the, the judgment that takes place in history as well as the judgment that takes place at the end of history. But I don't think saying that there is a final judgment is controversial among Christians. I think what's controversial among Christians today is to say that God acts and judges, that Jesus acts and judges in history, that there is this ongoing rolling judgment that happens throughout history as Jesus exercises his authority over the nation's we have to affirm that, that the rising and falling of nations and empires is because of the the blessing or the judgment of Jesus. And these bodies that are piling up, once again, what do we do with that, this big pile of corpses? Well, these bodies are now his footstool, but again here, they can have this double meaning. Jesus doesn't kill just to kill. He can kill to make alive. He can kill the old man to bring to life a new man. He can kill the pagan empire to replace it with a Christian one. He can kill the pagan empire to bring to life Christendom. Just like he can put to death the old Adam in you, the old man to make you a new creation. This is what Jesus is doing. See, the sword of his warfare is a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. But think about this. In Revelation 19, which again, I think is alluding to this passage and the, the battle scene you have here in Psalm 110. In Revelation 19, Jesus rides out on a white horse with his army, his willing volunteers following behind him. So it's a lot like Psalm 110. And he has a sword, but the sword is not in his hand. The sword comes from his mouth. His weapon is his word. And he strikes the nation with this sword word as he goes forth conquering and to conquer. And what you have in Revelation 19, it really fits really well with this, is Christ conquering the nations and subduing kings and kingdoms and nations and empires through the proclamation of his word. That's how Christ conquers. Fundamentally, it's through his word. As the gospel goes forth, the nations are subdued. That's how he shatters the nations with his rod of iron, as Psalm 2 puts it. Or as Isaiah 11 puts it, with the breath of his lips, he slays the nations. This has to do with his word going forth. You hear a lot of talk these days about Christian nationalism. I'm guessing that conversation has made its way to Seattle. I know it's going on where I am. Christian nationalism, that's all well and good. Christian nationalism, yes, of course, we want Christian nations. But that's not enough. We want Christian everything. We want Christian neighborhoods and Christian schools and Christian colleges, Christian towns and cities and counties, Christian states and nations and empires. We want a Christian planet. We want a Christian cosmos. And Psalm 110 is saying we've already got it in principle and more is on the way. This is where history is headed. History is a series of judgments leading to salvation. Christ is continually shaking down the things that can be shaken so the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Jesus puts the world through one crisis after another until finally everyone has been humbled and everyone has bowed the knee to him. At the end of verse 6, it says, he will execute the head of countries. This is a head crushing. Again, it recalls Genesis 3.15, the Messiah crushing the serpent's head. He will crush the heads of those who side with the serpent and those who serve the serpent. Satanic kings, satanic servants will have their heads crushed. Now, what do you think that means for Joe Biden? (gasps) or Kamala Harris, or any number of other politicians we could name in our nation and other nations, it means they are due for a head crushing. It's coming. Psalm 110 promises it. But again, when you take all this imagery together, it's not just about destruction of enemies. It's also redemptive. He judges the nations in order to bring them to their knees so they will repent, so they will confess that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And again, the goal here is not merely Christian nationalism, Christian nations, as wonderful as that goal is, it's really, you could say, Christian internationalism, Christian globalism. It is a whole planet subdued to the reign of Christ. He will be satisfied with nothing less. We should be satisfied with nothing less either. And then the last line gives us a fitting conclusion, where if Satan's head will be executed and crushed, and the kings that serve Satan, they will have their heads executed and crushed, the Messiah will lift up his head. That's how the psalm ends. The heads of the wicked being crushed, but the Messiah lifting up his head. He will drink continually of the river of the spirit to refresh him. That's the imagery here. He never grows weary as the battle of history rages on. This psalm says he will drink of the river by the way. Okay? Whenever you hear that word way, you need to think way of righteousness, way of wisdom. Proverbs talks about the two ways. Jesus talked about the two ways. The language here is straight out of Psalm 1. The imagery here is straight out of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 talks about a righteous man who he walks in the way of the righteous, and he's planted by the river, the flowing stream. You got the exact same imagery here. The way And the flowing stream. Jesus is, yes, the conquering warrior of Psalm 110. He's also the blessed man of Psalm 1. And he leads us in the way of righteousness and refreshment as well. Psalm 1 has a flowing river and a way. Psalm 110 does as well. This Melchizedekian priest, king, Messiah in Psalm 110 is really the fulfillment of the whole Psalter, including the blessed man Of Psalm 1. This is the warrior at the end of this psalm. This is the warrior taking Sabbath rest and refreshment before continuing his warfare. And that rest and that refreshment is for us as well. Christ does not want you to grow weary in doing what is good. And as the nations rage around you, and as there is this swirl of chaos all around us, he does not want us to grow weary. He wants us to keep fighting the good fight. To be his willing soldiers, his willing army in the day of his power. To be so drawn and captivated by his beauty and by his glory that we keep fighting for him no matter what. I want to close this out uh, just by uh, dealing with a couple of questions that I think are really interesting and maybe making a couple more applications. One thing that's really interesting to me about this psalm, you know, you have all this Messiah on the warpath imagery in this psalm. That's really what this is. The Messiah is on the war path. And you've got in this psalm, you've got references to Christ being an eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you've also got references to Christ as a Davidic king. Now, I don't think it's very hard to see how this imagery of warfare, this battle imagery, fits with Jesus' kingship. After all, we expect kings, especially Davidic kings, to be warriors, to be battlefield heroes. And Jesus does not disappoint us in that way. He strikes and he smashes his enemies from the beginning to the end of this psalm. So this psalm paints a portrait of an utterly and completely victorious king. But this psalm also pays homage to Jesus' priesthood. And so, well, at least if you're me, you might wonder where does this priestly imagery, how does this priestly imagery work in the psalm? Where do we see Jesus' priesthood being worked out? I can see his kingship in the battle. What about his priesthood? Well, I would contend that the battle imagery you see here is not only kingly, but the battlefield imagery you have here also fits with Jesus as priest. It is also priestly. Because in the Bible, priests are warriors just as much as kings, Waging holy war has been a priestly calling from the beginning. This is true if you go all the way back to Adam. You know, start with Adam. Adam was a priest serving in the garden sanctuary of Eden. That was the original temple. And actually, the the words that are used for Adam's task, his mission in the garden, to tend and keep it or to serve and guard it in Genesis 2.15, those same verbs are used later to describe the tasks of the priests at the tabernacle in Numbers chapter 3. So Adam is being given a priestly task in the garden just as the priests were to guard and keep the sanctuary. So he has to guard and keep Eden. Now, this is what's interesting. If Adam was told to guard the garden, what should he have deduced from that? He should have inferred from that that there is going to be some kind of invader. If, if you're told to guard something, it's because it's probably under attack. There's probably somebody who's going to try to get in. He's going to break in, some kind of intruder. And so it is, almost right away, an intruder shows up in the garden. And what should have happened at that moment if Adam was doing his priestly task As soon as that serpent started questioning God's word to the woman, Adam should have stepped between the serpent and the woman. That's what priests do. They put themselves in the middle. They're mediators. He should have stepped between the woman and the serpent, and he should have silenced the serpent. He should have silenced the lying serpent by crushing its head. That was his priestly task, and because he failed at that priestly task, he lost both his priesthood and his sanctuary. Adam should have piled up at least one corpse in Eden on that day. He should have made the serpent a footstool for his feet, but he failed, and his failure was a priestly failure. He should have shattered and executed the serpent in a show of righteous wrath as a willing soldier, but he did not do it. None of those things happened. And so what should have been a day of power for Adam became a day of weakness and failure. He failed as a priest because he failed to fight. He refused to exercise holy violence. And so he lost his holy status and his access to the holy place. But this is what's interesting. Later in history, God establishes the tribe of Levi as the priestly tribe within Israel. But do you know why the Levites were chosen? The Levites in general, why they were chosen? And then the line of Phinehas... In particular, why the line of Phinehas was chosen to be the high priestly line within Israel. The Levites were chosen and Phinehas were chosen for these priestly tasks precisely because they were willing to guard in the way that Adam failed. They were willing to wage holy war against idolatry. So how did the tribe of Levi become the priestly tribe? How did the line of Phinehas confirm its standing as the high priestly line? Well, there are two well-known stories that give the answer. In Exodus 32, the golden calf incident, Moses asks the camp of Israel, who is on the Lord's side? And the Levites are the, one who came, are the ones who came to Moses and rallied around him. And Moses told the Levites to use their swords to kill the idolaters. And so driven by a holy zeal, the Levites fought to exterminate idolatry from the nation. The sons of Levi obeyed Moses, and they piled up about 3,000 dead bodies on that day. We could say in the language of Psalm 110, they made the enemies of the Lord into a footstool. They shattered and executed the idolaters in a day of righteous wrath. And on that day, Moses declared that this is their ordination to the priesthood in Exodus 32 verse 29. He says, today you have been ordained for service to the Lord because they were willing to wage this holy war. Something very similar happens with Phineas in Numbers 25. Phineas is the grandson of Aaron who was the first high priest of Israel. Just like Exodus 32, in this story in Numbers, Israel is once again committing idolatry. And what happens? The wrath of Phineas flares up against these spiritual and actually in this case also physical adulterers. You know, Psalm 110 describes a high priest king smashing his enemies. Well, that's what happens with Phineas. Phineas smashes the enemies of the Lord. God sends a plague and judgment. 24,000 people die. 24, you know, this time the, the pile of bodies is 24,000. Uh, there, there's, a, there's an incident there where one Israelite man was so audacious in his sin that he took a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses. And when Phinehas saw this intrusion of wickedness in the camp of the saints, he did not stand by and watch like Adam did in Eden. Instead, he sprang into action, piercing both the man and his pagan mistress with a spear. Be- he was a willing soldier, he was a willing fighter. And he exercised righteous wrath in bringing about this judgment. In the Old Covenant, the Levites carried swords, and those swords would be used to cut up sacrificial animals, but they could also be used against unholy invaders who trespassed into the Lord's tabernacle or temple. Sometimes guarding entailed violence. Now, here's the thing. In in the New Covenant, of course, we don't wage warfare in this same way. It's really interesting. Go back to Acts chapter 2 and think about this as an example. I made reference to Acts chapter 2 already, but think about this. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is functioning as a kind of high priest, a first among equals with the other apostles. At Pentecost, he takes the lead by preaching his sermon. And you can see he is filled with zeal for the Lord. He's waging war against the Lord's enemies as he preaches. And when his sermon reaches its climax, and the sermon is based on Psalm 110 we're told that the people were cut to the heart. The sword of the word is piercing their hearts. Peter is cutting open these sinners. He is killing old unbelieving Jews so newly made Christians can arise. Like Phineas, he is driving the spear of God's word through them. And what is the result? 3,000 are saved that day, meaning that Peter's holy war ministry in Acts chapter 2 precisely reverses the 3,000 who were killed by that Levitical holy war in Exodus chapter 32. The giving of the Spirit overturns the curse that came when the law was given and, of course, then broken. Peter's use of Psalm 110 in Acts 2, 34, and 35 invites us to interpret the whole scene in light of the categories of Psalm 110. On the day of Pentecost, the priest king, Jesus Christ, reigned in the midst of the very enemies who had crucified him. And on that day, he made 3,000 of his enemies into a footstool for his feet. He created an army of willing volunteers. See, Psalm 110 shows us what history is all about. It shows us where history is going. Psalm 110 shows us what our mission is, what the mission is, what the mission of the church is, what it's all about. Psalm 110 is the gospel, but not in a sweet and fuzzy form. It's a hard-edged gospel, a bloody gospel, a militant gospel. It's a gospel that fights and wages war. The widespread use of Psalm 110 in the New Testament and the widespread ignorance of Psalm 110 in the church today is very telling. The church in our day is weak because we don't know and we don't sing Psalm 110 and other similar psalms of praise. If we are going to navigate the great political and cultural and economic crises of our day, if the church is going to lead the way in navigating these crises, it will only happen if we embrace Psalm 110 and everything that it teaches, everything it teaches us about Jesus and about what he is doing in the world, everything it teaches us about ourselves and what we're called to do, everything it teaches us about the the trajectory and direction of history. Psalm 110 is the gospel. It's good news. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time that we've had together tonight to consider these psalms. Father, again, we thank you for Psalm 110 and all that it reveals to us. The glory shown here, the glory of Christ revealed to us as our great priest king, as a warrior who has gone forth conquering and to conquer, who is making the nations his own. Father, we thank you that he has conquered us and made us his willing subjects and soldiers. And may he continue to extend his rule through us to the ends of the earth. This we pray, giving you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you all.